Hey, I'm Eric, a.k.a. Revolver, and I'm Sean. And we're the Verta Guys, checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo Comics. We're going to start with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we're covering Sandman number one. I think we decided to go in publication order, right? So Sandman debuted first? No. <laughs> I guess Hellblazer is a little bit older. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Although we're actually talking about a not-Vertigo comic here, but Sandman will be Vertigo as soon as they launch Vertigo in 1993. Ah, I see. Well, okay, so we're covering today Sandman issue number one, Sleep of the Just, written by Neil Gaiman, with art by Sam Keith and Mike Dringenberg. And colors by Daniel Vazzo. Yeah, although I think this is a recolored... Edition. So I don't know if these these are actually Daniel Vazzo's colors. That's right. That they recolored seeing. these issues for the trade, which we're both looking at. Yeah, we're working with uh, the trade paperback edition here of of Sandman. We neither of us has those that run, which I think is super expensive right now. Probably is. The recolor was a little bit controversial. The original colors were harsher, more garish, but they were also less detailed. A lot of uh, crowd scenes and tableaus would be sort of all in one color. I see. So they made it look a little more lush Yeah. when they recolored it, but, yeah. but a little less foreboding, perhaps. Yeah, it's a bit of a different effect. Gotcha. The art in this issue is Sam Keith and Mike Dringenberg. They obviously sort of originated the look for Morpheus. Yeah. I think they're probably not my favorite art team on Sandman, but they definitely set the tone for what it was going to look like. I think their art is almost cartoony in a way. Which strikes me as very like old school horror comic. Characters have like slightly over over large heads, uh, sort of yeah. exaggerated proportions. Yeah, it, it works to really good effect in this. I don't know how much of this is Mike Dringenberg, but I, I'm not familiar with uh, with him. But I do know Sam Keith, and this really looks like Sam Keith to me. Okay, so should we should we start recapping? Uh, let's talk for just a second about the cover. It's a Dave McKeon cover. I think all or damn near all the Sandman issues are. Yeah, and Dave McKean has that, I hate to use the word dreamlike at this early in our coverage <laughs> of a Sandman comic book, but uh, but he has that, that great dreamlike sensibility. Yeah, we've got a drawing of the face of Morpheus here in which he looks almost like almost like a hurricane. It's, it's Morpheus as a personified force. And like, I think every Sandman issue uses this format where it's sort of surrounded by curio shelves, which sort of express the themes of this issue. Okay, uh, yeah, I like that elaborate framing effect, and we see that inside the book itself, too. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes the, the panels will have these elaborate frames around them. Yeah. All right, so you want to go into it? Maybe we should do a little bit of background first. If you know a lot about the background of this book, you could jump into that. Well, I know basically that Gaiman, he had worked a little bit on British comics. Uh, he had worked in Marvel Man. Okay. And, and he was still pretty young when he was coming into DC, and his first job was writing Black Orchid, a character who at the time was so obscure that he had to explain to the editor who Black Orchid was so that he could get the job. <laughs> and Sandman's a previously existing character as well, although this is sort of a different Sandman than the Sandman who already had a DC comic. Yeah, so the Golden Age character is Wesley Dodds, who's sort of a detective Sandman. And his thing is going around in a gas mask, knocking criminals out with a, a gas gun. Okay. He knocks people out. He's the Sandman. He puts them to sleep. And he and he wears a gas mask, as you mentioned. And is his name Dream or Morpheus? 
Uh, both. You mean the main character in this book? Both. Yeah. Well, he has a sort of helmet that looks like a gas mask, too. Yeah, and that's something we're going to hit on when we get into the story a little bit. He has that sort of elephantine helmet, which I believe at some point we're going to find out is the skull of a defeated enemy. Oh. All right. Okay, so jumping in on page one here. June 6th, 1916. Witchcross, England. The uh, home of arcanist Roderick Burgess. Yeah, and I really like that this starts with uh, Dr. John Hathaway being woken up because his car has arrived. That's just a nice touch. Yeah, that's cool. I'm going to point out on this page also there's a devil-shaped door knocker. This is a device that Gaiman reuses in a number of works. There's a devil-shaped door knocker, and often somebody will feel it move under their hand. Interesting. Okay, so Hathaway has been summoned here to see Mr. Burgess. Actually, I think Hathaway has arrived to see Mr. Burgess. I'm not sure if it was on his own initiative. We actually get the impression, I think, that he's rejected Burgess's entreaties before. Right. Yeah, they've, they've had some kind of previous discussions, and something has happened to Mr. Hathaway that has caused him to reconsider their previous conversations. Yes, yeah, specifically, he, the destroyer on which his son is serving in World War I has been sunk. Yeah, so his son has just died, uh, which has caused him to change his mind about the position he has previously taken, that he is not going to give the Magdalene Grimoire to... Roderick Burgess. Yeah, Burgess has a plan here. Do we want to go into the details of his plan, or do we want to talk about that in a minute when they're actually underway? No, let's let's go ahead and go forward. I don't I don't think we're missing much here. Okay, I, I will point out that I think the uh, the oh, the giant oval window in the study at Witch Cross just looks cool as hell. It looks like the sun itself is sitting in his study. Yeah, and we also have some more of that like elaborate framing of panels in, on this page. Yes. The sort of screaming devil icons that surround the panel of Burgess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, uh, so next we're introduced to the beginning of four different stories. Uh, and these all run throughout this issue. Yep, we've got Ellie Marston in Toronto, Canada, who's listening to a bedtime story. And it's Alice Through the Looking Glass. And it's the line, said Tweedledum, when you're only one of the things in his dream, you know very well you're not real. That's a cool That's line. another little hint. Yeah. Yeah, lots of sort of foreboding stuff about about dreams and sleep. Yeah. So Daniel Bustamante is in Kingston, Jamaica, and he has a favorite dream where he dreams a castle made of clouds. In Verdun, France, Stefan Wasserman is a young man who lied about his age to serve in the German army in World War One, and he's going over the top again tonight. And in London, England, there's Unity Kincaid. And I don't really know what we're supposed to get about her from this page. She dreams of a tall, dark man. His eyes burn like twin stars in her head. Yeah, I'm not really sure where that's going. And I've read this issue twice, so... <laughs> so that's the that's the image of dream. And I'm not sure that it's totally clear to you at this point, but um, the way dream is often described and the way they're trying to depict him is that his eyes appear to be sort of windows onto endless blackness through which two stars can be distantly seen. Oh, okay. So that's what they're getting at, and we'll see that a little bit in the issue. So we're introduced to these four characters. The one to keep an eye on, I'll drop a tiny spoiler, is Unity Kincaid. Uh, But we're going to see all of them throughout this story. Okay. And back at Witchcross, Roderick Burgess is preparing a ritual with the help of his son Alex. Yeah, I I completely missed the first time through 
this issue, how early on we see that Alex is actually wise to his father's doings. Yeah. You know? It's not something that he kind of takes over later. He is already sort of actively involved, even at the point where they have the initial plan. Yeah. And here's where Burgess explains the initial plan. To summon and imprison death. And after, after this night, when death is at Burgess' command, no one need ever die again. Yeah, he, he clearly has thought this through very carefully. <laughs> it's, a, it's a measured and reasonable plan, and I don't see how it can go wrong. <laughs> All right. He makes a reference to Alistair and his friends. Oh, yeah, his, his rivalry with Alistair Crowley. Yeah, that, that, that amused me. He also... Um, he also says, whether the plan works or not, they got Hathaway to give them the um, Magdalene Grimoire. So they, he, yeah. they've got him now, which means they, they can have their pick of anything in the in the Royal Museum. Yeah, this is where we start to see that Roderick Burgess is a total dick. Mm, yeah. <laughs> because even though Hathaway gave him the Grimoire, he's now going to use that to blackmail him to get anything else he wants from the museum. What a cockbag. <laughs> he's not a nice man. No, he isn't. So they go forward with this ceremony. Burgess sacrifices a coin of stone, a song stolen from the dirt, a knife from under the hills, and a stick a stick that he stuck through a dead man's eye, the claw of a rat, a name that is lost, the blood from his vein, and the feather from an angel's wing. How did he beat an angel? I, I don't know. That's a whole other story. <laughs> to get that, that thing. That's got to be a prequel one-shot. So. I wonder if they're blackmailing the angel as well. <laughs> He gives us one feather. We got him. <laughs> we can get Any anything else we want from that angel shit we want. <laughs> you guys got the McRib up there? I know you guys got the McRib year-round. The McRib year-round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, a long story short. They perform this summoning ritual. They use the names of various fairly obscure ancient gods and all chant together, Come. Come. And they entrap... It's death. They got him. And the plan works fine. Yeah. <laughs> Looks out real good. Here we get, we get a really nice cinematic image on the title page of the collapsed dream trapped in the summoning circle. Right. Uh, so they actually, uh, they get not death at all. This isn't death. Damn it to hell, says, says Burgess. And he will explain a little later. It's one of the endless, probably, dream do you want to talk a little bit about who Dream is, or do you want to let the issue go forward? No, why don't you uh, why don't you dive into that? So the Endless are basically seven concepts that represent the entire universe. They're like gods, although they're described as being older and more powerful than gods. Dream is described at one point as the king of all that isn't. He is the concept of imagination and storytelling, as well as dreams that you have at night. And he often goes by the name Morpheus. I see. Would you say that he's the most dangerous man alive? <laughs> he's not really a man. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but Burgess says, this will have been a very profitable evening's work. Nonetheless, as he steals from the unconscious Morpheus, the ruby, the helmet, and the pouch. Yeah, which I wrote down as his artifacts. Yeah, his so. three tools. I thought the three tools were Roderick, Alex, and Paul. <laughs> All right, the capture of Morpheus has effects worldwide as we cut back to Ellie, who has fallen permanently asleep. And then we've got Daniel, who 
his castle in the clouds just sort of seems to dissolve. It's flimsy, frail, less real, and then it's not there at all. And then, too scared to sleep, he sobs to keep himself awake until dawn. Stefan, uniquely, is unable to go back to sleep ever again. How long can a boy go without sleeping? When do the nightmares sneak out into the daylight? And then there's Unity Kincaid, who finds it harder and harder to stay awake. And it seems like she's not dreaming. She's sleeping constantly, but not dreaming. Yeah. You know, it's really not clear to me throughout this issue how exactly the sleepy sickness works. Yeah, it's strange that, for one thing, it doesn't affect everybody. It's, it affects very specific people. And yeah, you haven't read the rest of the series, but they're never going to get into why those people. Okay. So we really never learn why it's... I, I mean, it'd be a pretty fabulous retcon to say, oh, yeah, uh, in the DC universe, nobody slept from 1914 until 1980. <laughs> that's, that's why they had this weird idea that Batman was punching out Hitler all the time. <laughs> no, sorry, that's the wrong. Yeah, but the sleepy sickness, it, it, it only afflicts certain seemingly random people, and it affects them very differently. Some of them can't sleep at all. Some of them can't stop sleeping. Yeah, but it seems like they all are not getting what they need from sleep. They're all not getting, they're all not able to dream. Okay. And we get this uh, nice fisheye shot. Yeah, this is page. really, this is really cool. The uh, the next page, which I believe is page 8, although they're not numbered in this TPB. No, I'm sorry, I think this is page 10. Although, again, I'm not sure. So 10 is the number that we're not sure is right, not 8. So, uh, folks at home, make note of that. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is 6 panels of of a fisheye kind of pov of dream looking out from the orb that he's trapped in at his captor roderick who yes. again is is just a really sweet and reasonable guy and you know has only has only the nicest things to say to him yeah burgess who is flanked by alex as well as his right hand man ruthven sykes ruthven Ruthven Sykes yeah, that's... Uh, explains to Dream that he is held both in a magical circle, which keeps his spirit under control, keeps him from using his powers to escape, and a crystal cell, which holds him physically. Yeah. You're fucked! <laughs> and on the next page, four years have passed. It's 1920, the Great War is over, and Hathaway comes under suspicion because of all the stealing of artifacts that <laughs> Burgess has forced him to do. Yeah, and so he decides to kill himself, but first he writes a suicide note detailing... Basically, he's going to bring Roderick down with him, which, you know, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Mm-hmm. But but somehow somehow his, uh, his suicide note slash confession catches fire and is never found. Did you understand what was going on there? We see Burgess looking through his crystal ball, and then we see the, the note burning through the crystal ball. So, yeah, I believe that... Burgess was able to sorcerously destroy that incriminating note. Oh, okay. Range. So this is something he's doing. Yeah. And that sets up what we're going to see again in a little while, is that Roderick Burgess has the ability to do quite a bit of damage with his magics at range. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, we learn here that Roderick is the Lord Magus, also called the Demon King, and is leader of the Order of Ancient Mysteries. The Order of Ancient Mysteries. Sorry. Yeah, that's that fine. No, I wasn't called for um, we're going to come back for the last time to one of our four sleepy sickness sufferers as Stefan Wasserman, never able to sleep again, commits suicide at the age of 16. Yeah, and um, looks like somebody knocked over his headstone because he was an X-Man. <laughs> oh, fuck! 
fucking god. That's <laughs> <laughs> what happened. Here, as you Spoiler alert! As you can plainly see. Oh, man. Um, okay. I think that's definitely a moment that either works for you epically or doesn't at all. You're talking about in Logan? Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about the end of the movie Logan. Definitely that. So Morpheus is immortal. He doesn't age and he doesn't need food. So he is able to withstand this well, imprisonment. Just a little spoiler. He does totally steal a guy's dream fried chicken later. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty great. <laughs> Might be my favorite thing. I don't mean yeah, in this so comic I mean, book. I mean it's my favorite thing. He hates it, but he's able to withstand this imprisonment for going on 10 years now, as it's now August 1926. Yeah, he's really got him over a barrel. I mean, they don't seem to know it. <laughs> They've got him captured, but he's kind of like, fuck it, I'm immortal, you're not. <laughs> and I'm not going to talk to you, I'm not going to... Yeah, exactly. Back when they first captured him, Roderick, Roderick says, patience. As if he's got all the time in the world to make Morpheus talk. And what we're going to see here is that it doesn't really work out that I thought that was Dream saying Is that right? Oh, you're right. You're right. Dream says... He's laying out his strategy and he just says, observe. Patience. Yeah, I don't think he means observe patience. I think it's two separate No, I got that completely wrong. You're right. Dream. Dream's strategy is patience. Oh, he says trapped. Observe. Threats. Patience. Yeah. He has time to be patient. And it reminded me of that, uh, of X-Men number one. Which I read earlier today. Okay. The original, like, like Stanley X-Men number one, where Magneto has broken into the, uh, well, it's like a, almost like a running theme throughout this issue that, like, Professor X keeps telling the X-Men that they have, like, 10 or 15 seconds to do something. You know? <laughs> right, yeah. He's like, he's like, do this in two seconds, do this in 15 seconds, whatever. So Magneto breaks into the, the missile base, and they say... They tell him, I want to know what you think you're doing here, or something like that. And you have 30 seconds to respond. And Magneto says, actually, I have all the time I want. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm in charge of shit here. And that's sort of like, I sort of thought of that while I was thinking about, like, you know, Morpheus being trapped by Roderick. It's like, you know, actually. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. So, actually, I I can afford to be patient for much longer than you can. Right. In 1926, we see Alex checking out the Liber Paginum Fulverum. That is incidentally a little Neil Gaiman in-joke. That's a magic book that appears in the novel Good Omens. Oh, okay. Well, all I know is it has this fucking sweet-ass sketch of Dream here, which is sort of, like, creepily childlike and looks really fucking cool. Yeah, that's a pretty cool drawing. And that's a skin, that's a, that is a terrifying monster based on that drawing. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, but this is where we first sort of learn... Who he is. Here is said the king of dreams. Yeah. And, and Roderick waited for him to figure it out on his own, I guess. Because he's, he's very instructional to his young son. Yeah, and here's we get another nice bit of foreshadowing. Well oh, done, yeah, Alex. Because Sykes I know is that, making there. I know that the order will be safe in your hands. If I ever forsake the material plane, huh? Hey, Mr. Sykes? Indubitably, Magus. <laughs> yeah, and Sykes is just making the best, like, I'm going to betray you at the <laughs> earliest convenience face. And I think we don't have to wait long before he does. Up, 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 I've turned the page, and... <laughs> In 1930, Sykes takes off with Burgess's mistress, Ethel Cripps. Keep an eye on her. Yeah. Uh, they steal the three tools, the helmet, ruby, and the pouch, and head to America. 
does it actually say uh, the uh, the helmet ruby in the pouch somewhere on this page? Or do they just say that they take a lot of the Order's treasures? It does say that they take with them the Order's treasures, although we can see the, the three items stacked on a crate here. Oh, so we can. We can. They're being fairly subtle here, but they keep showing us these three items. And, uh, and Sykes makes a deal with somebody, uh, some kind of demonic entity, and trades the helmet for an amulet of protection to uh, save him from Roderick's magics. So I haven't read ahead of where we are uh, in this episode, so I don't know, but it seems like what they're setting up is that Dream is going to have to get his artifacts back. That is absolutely right. And, and they, are, they have each been sold off in a different direction. And one of them, at least, is not even on Earth. It's been given to some kind of demonic entity. Yep. So you mind a little bit of spoiler here? No, go ahead. The creature which he is talking to, which has a, a sort of zzzing sound that gets into its voice. For this, I would give you what you ask. So splendid. That's a, Yeah, the way he says splendid is it's pretty baller. <laughs> this is Beelzebub, the Lord of Flies. We're going to see him. Oh, all right, cool. Not the Beelzebub, the Lord of Flies yep. is cool. But I would just mean, I understand. The story's, the story's cool. He doesn't sound like yeah. a cool dude. So with Alex, who is now an adult, Roderick attempts to sorcerously murder Ruthven Sykes. But it doesn't work because he's got that amulet protection that Beelzebub gave him. That's like mm-hmm. plus two to natural armor. Yeah, we got a pretty good drawing of a cat here. That's a very surprised looking cat they're about to sacrifice. Uh, somebody somebody knew how to draw a cat. Yeah. But in 1936, Ethel Cripps... Drawing animals is hard. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. I, I wouldn't know where to start. So way to go, Sam Keith and Mike Dringenberg. Yeah, I don't know which of them knows how to draw a cat. I, I think we can say safely that out of Sam Keith and Mike Dringenberg... At least one of them knows how to draw a cat real good. So if you want to see drawings of a cat, that's something else we're going to come back to. <laughs> yeah. Go to Sam Keith. You got at least a 50-50 chance <laughs> of it being him that knows how to draw a cat. So in 1936, Ethel Cripps walks out on Sykes taking the amulet with her. And then we get a really nice panel of Ruthven Sykes' head exploding. Yeah. And I think we can say safely uh, that... Either Mike Dringenberg or Sam Keith knows how to draw a guy's head exploding real good. <laughs> you know, um, this was definitely launched as a horror comic. There are going to be a lot of times in the course of the series when it forgets that it's a horror comic. By the end, you could really say that it isn't. This is not one of those times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is dark stuff. Oh, and, and on the next page, we come back to our four stories and a fifth one. Yeah, so Ellie Marston is in a charity ward, still asleep. She still thinks she is eight. Daniel Bustamante, he was one of the last people to come to Sleepy Sickness at the end of 1926. He has been asleep for 13 years. What's happened to Unity is particularly surprising. Unity Kincaid was raped seven years ago. She gave birth to a baby girl. The baby was adopted, and Unity never knew. She slept through the whole thing. Yeah, I guess we don't. I guess we don't go back to our fourth story. Wasserman, he died. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's why. Well, I guess there's not a lot left to tell there. Okay, but we do have a fifth one here. Um, Wesley Dodds, who is the... Would that be the Golden Age? Yeah. He's the Golden Age Sandman. And we see here that apparently what drove him to fight crime was to kind of combat the nightmares that came about as him also being a sufferer of sleepy sickness. Yeah, that's right. And we get this 
this concept here that the universe knows someone is missing, and slowly it attempts to replace him. So Dodds is not just inspired to fight crime, but he's inspired to take on this guise to wear this gas mask, which gives him the likeness of Morpheus. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. He doesn't dream about the man in the strange helmet anymore. No more burning eyes. Everything's all right. Leslie Dodds sleeps the sleep of the just. Hey, that's a title callback. It sure is. <laughs> or a, a, a title drop. <clears throat> Whatever you want to say. I wonder how much of a retcon this is. Like, I, I, I wonder if we went back and read Golden Age Sandman comics, if we would find that there is any reference at all to him having nightmares if he doesn't fight crime. I don't know. That's a good question. I'm sure it's some degree of retcon in any case. Yeah. Well, it's a way to connect the Wesley Dodds character, who's obviously actually the first Sandman, with the legacy of of the Dream character, who we now understand to be in universe much older, a right. much bigger story. We don't want to make this Sandman in name only. They wanted to have some connection to the Golden Age character. Yeah, and so they've and so and so Neil Gaiman has skillfully arranged that. Yeah. All right. Good job, Neil Gaiman. So we move on to 1947, where Burgess has sort of finally realized the catch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His uh, victory at last. And he dies. Even though... Uh, for the folks at home. <laughs> even though his captive is not death, he complains that he could have been given power. He could have been given immortality. I didn't have to get so old. I shouldn't have had to get old. And then he dies. Yep. Which gives Dream no satisfaction. Yeah, that's something that's, uh, that's going to be important in about ten pages. <laughs> he mainly wants out of that snow globe. Like Dustin. Dustin? Desmond. Like Desmond from Lost. Wants out of that snow globe. Is Desmond in a snow globe? I forgot that part of the show. Well, he's not literally in a snow globe, but he tries to get away from the island. Yeah. And then he gets... he And he somehow ends up back on the island, and he says oh, it's yeah. a bloody snow globe. Oh, okay. That's a good call. Yep. That's a good memory that you have there. Yeah, I don't even think I've watched that episode in the last uh, five, ten years, but pretty sure it happens. We cut back a little bit to our three surviving sleepy sickness sufferers. It's 1955. Ellie Marston wakes four or five times a year. She wants someone to read her a story. Daniel Bustamante actually, again, sleepy sickness affects people very differently. Yeah. Says he's awake much, much of the time, uh, but he's sort of walking through life like a zombie. Yeah, this is a, a really effective line, I thought. Something died inside him a long time ago, a castle made of clouds. Oh, that's sweet. And Unity is in a nursing home. Uh, they have to explain where she is every time she wakes. She never remembers. Okay, so we now go back to Stately Burgess Manor. Which um, cross? Well, yeah, yeah, that's what it's called. That's yeah, that's a cool name. Why can't I remember that? I don't know. Anyway, so it Al is quite stately. <laughs> so Alex is pondering what to do, what to do with Dream, now that you know his father's dead and he's he's inherited this really sweet conversation piece. In his <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, he's talking this hey over. Guys. You want to come over, uh, drink some coffee, do some amphetamines, and look at my big glass orb with a scary dude inside? <laughs> Sometimes he stares out in an almost glaring, kind of passive way. <laughs> does, he, does he say anything? or No, no, not much. He doesn't really talk. <laughs> He's talking this over with a young man named Paul, who is his male lover. Oh, really? Yeah. Where does it say that? 
Oh, oh, no, 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 right here. Okay, Paul has the first line on the page. Alex Darling. Oh, okay. Yeah, that works. And, yeah. Okay. I did not notice that. Um, oh, okay, so on our next page, we got our first look at Dream, I think. This is our first look at him. Yeah, other our than first look the, at his face. Other than in the book. The, the you know, the childlike sketch of him. Yeah, well, this is our, our first look at Dream's face uh, under his, his regalia. Yeah. Yeah, and it's our first look at the actual thing, not like a... Not like a rendition of it as well. He's terribly pale, and his eyes are wells of blackness with tiny burning lights in them. He and looks pretty fucking cool. Let's, let's <laughs> I'm cool. glad you think so. Let's just be cool. Let's just be clear about that for our listeners. This this panel where we first see Dream, he looks like a pretty badass dude. Alex offers him the same deal as always. Freedom in exchange for power, immortality, and a promise of no revenge. Dream doesn't say a word. Well, yeah, and he says no, but it's cool because it's like he's not just saying no to like the deal. He's saying no to like the guy's like say something, and he's like no. And we don't even know if he's actually like saying no. I think it's. I think this is actually it's sort of ambiguous his... whether he's saying that or whether it's in his. In I his think thoughts. it's in his head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't actually think he says anything. Alex. But. So, it's the 70s, and that makes a guy with an epic sideburns like Alex, who lives in a scary old bitchin' house, the boss. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty, he's very popular. But in spite of his popularity, he seems to have no interest in running the order the way that his father does. He's sort of, kind of gradually shutting it down, not telling anybody, not telling any of his disciples anything important. You that's, know? that's kind of fair. Yeah, he's got all these hangers-on who are interested in, in, like, yoga and tantric sex and kind of weird mystical concepts, but they're not really interested in active magic, and Alex really isn't either. Yeah. He doesn't want them to call, call him Magus. Yeah, he holds on to... to be called Magus. He, like, holds on to the vestiges of the Order, but he's not really interested in it. Yeah. Certainly not to the degree that his father was. And Paul is even less so. Paul, as it says, views the Order as a way to separate the credulous from their money. <laughs> yeah, that's a little... I think that's a little ways... Uh, ahead of where we are now, but that, yeah. that does happen. We do check in with our three sleepers. They're more or less the same. Yeah, not a lot of development. And we learn that Alex keeps two guards at the crystal cell at all times, never permitted to sleep in the room. They are provided fr- with free coffee and amphetamines. <laughs> yeah. Which is, well, I'm sure, a serious perk for some people. No, I got this wrong. It was the 60s before. Now it's 1970, and the order is basically gone. Well, those sideburns are only getting more and more popular, so... (laughs) Whatever happens. Yeah. Oh, man, I never noticed this before, but that portrait of his ugly-ass mean father that, like, leers over him when he's at his desk. Yeah, this is a great bit in terms of Alex's characterization. His relationship with his father. Alex is writing a memoir about his father, writes letters to newspapers defending his father's reputation, is editing a volume of his father's letters. One night he slashed his father's portrait with a knife. Yeah, it's, um, it's a, it's a tough shadow to live under. And it's a really ugly face to have staring down at you the whole time you're at your desk. Yeah, that's a, that an unpleasant piece of imagery. But yeah, I love the complexity of this relationship that he's he's allowed his life to be dominated by his father's legacy, but at the same time he kind of hates it. Yeah, and he's sort of deconstructing it. But the other thing that he's always looking at, other than his father's ugly mug, <laughs> is the ugly mug of our main character, Dream, in his super bitchin' gas mask. Yeah. 
And then ten more years pass. Alex growing from a middle-aged man to an old one. Paul growing from an awesome velvet suit <laughs> into a balding fellow. Yeah. I should say another 16 years pass. Yeah, and, and in, As, uh, in 1988, Alex says he, he, he's particularly, uh, particularly salty one day. And he says, I hate you. I'm glad we trapped you. You're nothing special, you know that? You're nothing at all. A naked man in a glass box. That's all you are. You're nothing at all. I Green love goes soon. <laughs> I love this page awesome. because sixteen years pass and we see Alex's attitude grow from like desperation for dream to fulfill the deal to empty threats to feudal impotent <laughs> resentment. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and they finally slip up. Yeah, as he's wheeled away, Alex, who now inhabits a wheelchair, his wheel crosses the magic circle. Right. Creating a break in it. Breaking it uh, and thereby breaking the spell. Dream is immediately able to put his two guards to sleep. Yeah, uh, incidentally, have a look at these two guards. These are uh, guys named Frederick and Ernie. They look familiar at all? Frederick and Ernie. They kind of look like Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. So Fred goes into a dream of uh, sleeping on a beach full of naked women in Majorca in, on his next vacation. I'm sorry. Are they naked or are they in Majorca? They're, they're, they're both. I don't know what I don't know what Majorca actually is. Uh, Majorca is not a kind of robe. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's not. What, what is it then? <laughs> It's apparently a place where women get naked. <laughs> okay, so he's looking at naked at women yeah. who are naked except for the fact that they're wearing some Majorca. <laughs> Is that henna? <laughs> Alright, and we have this first person shot as a pale hand grabs the sand from the beach. Oh, that's fucking sweet. I never noticed that before. That's where he gets the sand. Yep. Uh, Morpheus suddenly collapses in the crystal cell, something he's apparently never done in in 70 years. Actually, I think it's pretty cool that after 70 years, his plan to get out of the cell is, I'm going to fake my death. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to fall down and hope they think I'm sick. Well, you know, you can't argue with his results. <laughs> they, uh, they do open up the cell and he immediately blows the sand out into the room, putting everyone to sleep. The two yeah. guards and Paul. And it looks like they called a bunch of other muscle in as well. There's a lot of sweet, trippy art here as he's escaping. Yeah, this is rad. We get this great shot at the uh, on the right-hand side of this page as he blows the sand, and he's got this kind of cartoony, puffed-out cheeks. <laughs> yeah, and then the sort of like the the sort of twisty reality as the as the sand blows out them. Yeah, and then we get an almost full-page spread of naked Morpheus ripping open a path to the dreaming and teleporting away. Yeah, I think this is a three-quarter page. Yeah, and check out the uh, clouds that surround this portal. Notice that they have small faces on them. Oh, perhaps the faces of dreamers. Mm, that's interesting. I never saw that before. This next page is my favorite part, where he steals a guy's dream of fried chicken. <laughs> yeah, so Morpheus uh, is trying to get back to his home and back to his center of power. But first, he's starving after never having eaten in 70 years, and he wanders into somebody's dream. A dream of being a clown at a party, which he thought was a costume party, but wasn't. <laughs> and uh, raids the buffet and escapes with an armful of a chicken, what looks like a giant sub sandwich, and a mouthful of food. 
Colonel Sanders is clearly visible on this page. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He's reaching into a bucket of chicken that Colonel Sanders is holding. <laughs> yeah. So, we don't know that that's the the food that Dream is dreaming of, but it's it's somebody's ideal meal. Yeah, yeah. Well, this guy is having a party with apparently all kinds of celebrities. Elvis and John Wayne are in attendance. And Colonel Sanders as well. Well, he is A-list. Yeah. I mean, you know, any, any, anywhere the beautiful people are rubbing up, those Colonel Sanders going to be there with a bucket of original style. That is a dude who never has to worry about what to bring to a potluck. No. Um, that's the first time a naked man has ever turned up to raid the buffet. Dreams, go figure them. Once he's uh, stuffed his face, Morpheus generates himself some clothing. He looks surprisingly contemporary, all things considered. Got a big trench coat and some black jeans. He looks 90s as a motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. But it works for him. And all over the world, the sleepy sickness sufferers begin to wake up. Yeah, and and this is this is my favorite, my actual favorite part in the, in the comic book, other than the... The stealing of the dream chicken. Okay. Where where Unity Kincaid says, I dreamed I had a baby with a single tear dropping out of her eye. Yeah, that's intense. There's also this moment where these two dudes are just standing in front of zombie like uh, Daniel Bustamante. And one says, he can't talk, he's crazy. And Daniel pipes up, not anymore. <laughs> I just imagine that would be just both this scary and hell as hell for those two guys and kind of hilarious for daniel <laughs> to have the ability to generate that moment yeah and then we come to page 32 which uh, 32 by my count and this uh this is a pretty this is a pretty difficult page to follow it has by my count 15 panels yeah there's a, a fair amount happening alex now the spinning image of his father is asleep and in his dream, he walks the halls of Witchcross. And as he gets closer and closer to the crystal cell in the basement, he reverts first to a middle-aged man and then a young one. And by the time he reaches the basement, he is the, the small child who first saw Morpheus. Right. Yeah. That's fucking rad. <laughs> it's really well done. And he does not walk into the crystal cell, however. He walks into a sort of tower turret. Yeah, and Morpheus slash dream... Is sitting there on a throne. Yeah. There's a cat here, and uh, to one side of the room we have a skull-shaped window. They're which... showing off that those cat drawing skills again. Yeah, excellent stuff. We have a, a skull-shaped window with two stars burning in place of eyes in the distance. Alex recognizes his prisoner and uh, begs forgiveness, saying it was his father's fault. But Dream's not really hearing it. There are offenses that are unpardonable. Yeah, Dream is understandably pissed off, but he's also a really arrogant guy. And just the whole idea of having been messed with at all by petty hedge-magicking two-penny sorcerers <laughs> makes him furious. And even though the guy who was mostly responsible isn't around, Morpheus is going to get his revenge. Yeah. I also like he said, where he says, what? You wanted death? Then count yourself lucky for the sake of your species you, that and your petty planet that you did not succeed, that instead you snared death's younger brother. You'll never know how lucky you were. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. Like, as much as, like, your shit is fucked. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice little call aside. And what we're getting here, it's kind of, it's, it's pretty subtle, but there's kind of a major thematic hook for the series here in that we see that for 70 years for most of the people on earth with the exception of a handful that have sleepy sickness dreams duties 
were not being fulfilled, and yet they went on anyway. So that's something to think about as we go forward into the series. Interesting. Dream demands the location of his tools. The pouch, the helm, the ruby. But Alex doesn't know because Sykes stole them 60 years ago. So he's going to get his revenge, like you said, and he sentences Alex to something called uh, Eternal Waking. This is scary as hell, and we get two pages of outright horror comic here. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, and basically what happens is that Alex just keeps having nightmares and... You know, waking up with a start and thinking that he's woken from his nightmare and then realizing that he's still in it. Uh, and it's implied, you know, over and over and over again for the rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Or for the rest of forever. Have you ever had one of those dreams, you know, where you think you've woken up but you haven't? It's just part of the nightmare and you're still in it? Can't say that I have, dear, but you know what? I think you're going to be having quite a lot of them from now on. And that's spoken by uh, a nurse whose head has fallen off onto his lap. Yeah! And there's all sorts of other disgusting images there. So even though it took a lot out of him to do that to Alex, Dream is out, he's free, and he's gonna go get his stuff back. He's in search of his stuff. And, and meanwhile, uh, the, the, the comic ends with um, Alex's servants trying to wake him and being unable. And they say, how long has he been like this? He's only been asleep a few minutes, if that's what you mean. Funny, he's normally such a light sleeper. And they say, please wake up. Please. And that's it. So, what do you think of that one? I, that was a really good comic. It's got a real sort of epic quality to it, the way it, the way it covers all those years. And just a, a sort of great, like, dark fairy tale kind of feel. Yeah, I think it's it's great that it covers a lot of stuff. I mean... It's 70 years of the main character sitting in a cell. And they had to convey... Gaiman had to convey the immensity of that time. And I think Mm -hmm. they did a good job of that by focusing on a lot of stuff that's going on both outside in the world and just with the cast at Witch Cross slowly aging into irrelevance. Yeah, and, and even though I said that I never really understood how the sleepy sickness worked and I thought it was difficult to understand, it's still a very effective way of kind of getting us to invest in all this time that's going by in these four characters. Yeah, that's true. And it gives us the impression that Dream is a big deal. His his absence affects the whole world. Yeah. And the quest to, to get his artifacts back is, is just a really good hook for the, for the story to go on. Um, the art in this is absolutely beautiful. As I said before, I don't, I don't really know what Mike Dringenberg, what his art looks like. But this looks a lot like Sam Keith to me, and it's Sam Keith at his best. Well, so where do you know Sam Keith? Sam Keith is drawing a lot of stuff recently that I can't name off the top of my head, but <laughs> I've definitely seen his name on modern comic books. He also wrote The Max. That's Bill Messner Lowe's comic? Yeah, yeah, he worked on it too. Yeah, but cool. he's, he's one of the people behind The Max. And The Max has sort of like very exaggerated... But definitely comic book style art. Yeah, it, yeah, it's sort of like you described this, like sort of cartoonish, but okay, in a very expressive way. Great flow to it. Cool, cool. So the rest of this trade, the rest of the first arc, is basically Dream's mission to recover his artifacts. We're gonna see some pretty awesome stuff. <laughs> awesome! I can't wait. Okay, well now we've come to a segment that I like to call. Hey, Sean, read this. 
where I blindside Sean with a Vertigo comic that just came out. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we've got Savage Things number one from Vertigo that just dropped. So we're going to give Sean a minute to read this, and then we're going to check back in with you. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. Okay, so I just had Sean, I just blindsided Sean with Savage Things number one on sale this week from Vertigo. How, how did you find it? I mean, it was a comic book. <laughs> that much is certainly true. Um, okay, so there's this story here about this secret government agency that apparently has the ability to predict which people are sociopaths. I don't know if they isolated like behavioral records or if they had some kind of methods that we didn't know about. But they use it to track down children who are sociopaths. And then they take them to a secret school to train them to be secret agents and, and kill for the U.S. of A. Yeah. Do we actually know that it's the government? No, I guess I just assumed it was it was CIA crap. Yeah, but um, but he, he says that there's this trifecta of behaviors, and we see the kid uh, at the beginning is is setting a fire. He's just finished setting a fire when he comes home. Oh, yeah, fire. yeah. So pyromania or arson is one of the trifecta of behaviors. Right. Yeah, and the other uh, one is animal cruelty, and then the third one is bedwetting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, so they, they know who sociopaths are going to be, and they steal sociopath kids from all over the country and put them into service as assassins. After, you know, making sure to kill a good half of them for some reason. Yeah, and and also they kill their parents. I mean, I don't know if the guy... I don't know if the guy who does most of the killing in this issue is a sociopath or just evil? <laughs> all right, it, it, yeah, it certainly seems like he is. But, I mean, that guy definitely kills, you know... Kills and laughs about it. And kills civilians and, and has fun doing it. This is a, a very murdery book. Yeah, no, it's it absolutely is. So uh, I guess what eventually happens is that the project is project is shut down. Yeah. And then the guys who were in charge of it, they, they go their own separate ways until some years later, somebody commits loads of murders at a hotel in New York. And now the only one who can help them solve this mystery is the guy they call Abel, who is... The main kid that we saw at the beginning of the comic book, right? One of these sociopathic yeah. killers. Now grown up, and then and then they send a uh, they send a SWAT team to get him to just grab him and bring him in, and he kills most of those guys because he's really good at killing people. Yeah, but then one of them gets the drop on him, and it's implied. It seems it seemed to me that it was implied that maybe this is another member of his you know class. Mm, could be. May, maybe this, maybe if uh, we went back and look at the class picture, we'd be able to see if like that person is there. Maybe this woman who gets the drop on him is uh, a sociopath, too. It's very sort of like sociopathy as a superpower. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's exactly right. This is like, it. it's exactly like that. It's like treadstone training, except it's being born a sociopath. Right. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know about Savage Things. I'm... I had a lot of problems with it, but I think I'm probably going to buy number two. Okay. When it comes out. Yeah, well, one thing about comic books, about decompressed comics, and this is a very decompressed comic, is that you do kind of have to give it time to set up the story. And that's actually something that kind of bugs me about this book. I mean, it's kind of unfair to compare it, but compared to Sandman, Preacher, and Hellblazer, which all had double-sized premieres. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, it was really nice to have in those books the ability to set up so much of the world and story and character all at once. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure taking. I'm sure DC Comics 
is taking a risk on Savage Things, number one, and they it'd be even more of a risk if they were to make it a double-sized issue. Yeah, that's probably true. I didn't enjoy it very much. It's yeah, not my thing. I'm not sure it's my thing either, but I'm weirdly fascinated by it at the same time. I'm gonna I'm gonna check out at least a little bit more of it. I also would point out this what we see on the cover. This never happens. I don't even know who this guy. I guess this is supposed to be Abel, but Abel's black, and you could be mis- you could mistake that for a white guy. This looks to be the guy on the cover seems to be a white guy. DC, I guess DC is just like is just like hey hey everybody. This comic definitely stars a white guy. <laughs> Yeah, it's not uh, it's not a great optic, but there it is. Yeah, <laughs> might be what's going on here. But then, like, I was never hooked by Hannibal, the way you were. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian Fuller's TV series Hannibal. Well, Hannibal's and I was a- never hooked by The Punisher the way that you were either. Well, yeah, I think Hannibal's a little different. Hannibal, uh, you could tell, was of great quality right away. You know, I wasn't sure that they were going to get it right right away, but you could tell at least that there was a lot of craft going into it. Mm, okay. Savage things I'm not even re- willing to say that much for. It's it's just that I'm kind of fascinated by it. I'm not willing to necessarily say it's good. Yeah, I have to say, there were scenes that I had to go back and reread. That's never a good sign. Yeah, I until the very last line of the comic, I thought that the main character was Kane and another kid was Abel. Which, maybe that's just me not paying attention. Once I went back and looked at it, it seemed obvious. I think it didn't have that, you know, level of craft on display. And the kind of cool idea is actually the thing about it that was most likely to hook me, as opposed to the way it was presented. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's been Sandman number one from 1989 and Savage Things number one from 2017. (laughs) What do we got lined up for next week? Come back next week when we hit the soggy streets of London to study Hellblazer number one and two with John Constantine. Also, a lot of it takes place in New York. Yeah. See you then.